Great God in heaven, I thank you for the privilege to worship you together as a group for this beautiful place, these beautiful people. But above all else, I'm praying that your beautiful character would be made manifest today. I'm asking that you would do something that none of us would soon forget and that you would show us your glory. Father, keep me from hindering this in any way. I pray that my sins would be covered with the blood of Jesus and that your spirit would speak and that you would keep my flesh at bay. And I ask this now and expect it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So the silence of God. Uh, this is something that isn't an easy thing to talk about, but it's certainly not easy to go through. Uh, there are people in this room who are really hurting right now because they prayed for someone to be healed and they were not healed. They prayed for people to still be here and they're not here. Um, they were hurting in a time of grief, and they felt that God wasn't there for them. This is a real topic. It's a heavy topic. And um, yeah, I just ask that you would keep uh, this whole process in prayer, uh, that this would be what God wants it to be, because I certainly don't want to get in the way, because this is a very delicate and uh, important issue. So what I'd like to do is just start telling you the story of three people who endured the silence of God in the Scripture, three groups of people. Uh, one is an individual, a second is a group, and the third is an individual, so however you classify that. But I think hearing their stories and how God dealt with them can be very helpful for us in the midst of wrestling with the silence of God in our own experience, and uh, maybe even finding healing from the silence of God that we dealt with years ago, because uh, it's, it's no joke. I mean, this, this can level people's Christian experience, that uh, they're laying it out for the sake of the people around them, but they themselves have died inside. And so... Yeah, please keep praying. So the first person I'd like to tell you about this morning is John the Baptist. This was a man of righteousness. Jesus had probably the most glowing testimony of anyone mentioned in the Bible that this is the guy, right? There was not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, Jesus says. John the Baptist is preaching a message of repentance, and it's a powerful message, and it's rocking the nation of Israel. And this is actually what we're told in the Desire of Ages that was the result of when he preached that Satan feared for the safety of his kingdom. How's that for preaching? <laughs> um, I can't say that about my preaching, I'll tell you that much. But that is what God wants, and that's what happened. When this man opened his mouth and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ to prepare a nation for repentance and to accept this Messiah, Satan himself trembled for the safety of his kingdom. Now, when John sees the Jesus walking by, he triumphantly proclaims in John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This man has no hesitation, no qualms, no, no uneasiness about who Jesus is or what his mission is. He knows, and he's not afraid to tell anybody, this is the guy. When Jesus is baptized, this dove, this, you know, the Holy Spirit in, in bodily form like a dove, falls upon Jesus. It's a supernatural occurrence, and the voice of God even is present, only further affirming John's conviction that Jesus is the guy. But then things start to change for John. John had been telling Herod that it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That's true. It's not. But he marries his brother's wife, and it's not a good thing. And when he rebukes Herod for this, Herod feared John the Baptist, but Herodias was livid. And eventually, John the Baptist gets thrown into prison. And this isn't a pretty picture, right? John is basically left to sit in this lonely prison cell right at the point when Jesus is now coming onto the scene. 
The very guy you've been preparing the nation for, the guy you see baptized, a Chris in the beginning of his ministry, and now all you're getting is like telegrams, if you will, in a lonely, dark, damp prison cell. And this just has to be a a really confusing experience and a disorienting experience for John because he's assuming, like a lot of the Jews are assuming, that Jesus is going to take the nation back and it's going to get awesome and soon. But Jesus isn't responding in the way that he thought he would, for one. And two, he's in prison. He doesn't get to see any of this. And it's very, very difficult. All John is getting are reports about Jesus, but he's not getting any visits from Jesus. And this is very difficult for him. This is the cousin of Jesus. There's a close, intimate relationship there, and this is something that's not easy. But it gets even worse, because while John is wrestling internally, the devil himself is certainly at work, and the people around John the Baptist, their counsel and their words are kind of like the counsel of the friends of Job. It's worth nothing. If anything, it's worth less than nothing. And they're questioning, is Jesus actually the guy? Because, I mean, for goodness, look, John's in in this prison cell. Wouldn't he do something about this if he was the guy? And couldn't he do something? This is what we're told in Desire of Ages. But they questioned why, if this new teacher was the Messiah, he did nothing to affect John's release. How could he permit his faithful herald to be deprived of liberty and perhaps of life? These questions were not without effect. Doubts which otherwise would never have arisen were suggested to John. And Satan rejoiced to hear these words and to see how they bruised the soul of the Lord's messenger. So he trembles when John preaches and he delights when John suffers. Now, there are times when we're hurting and we're wrestling. And again, that counsel that we get from the people around us is worth less than nothing. And so John the Baptist, a righteous man, is well acquainted with this, this this silence of God And not only the silence of God, but just kind of the frustration of your friends and the people around you, only compounding the problem, right? And this is what John is going through. It's not easy for him, very heartbreaking for him. And this is what she says. She says, oh, how often those who think themselves the friends of a good man and who are eager to show their fidelity to him prove to be his most dangerous enemies. You ever had close friends have words for you when you're hurting? They're just like a stab in the heart. John the Baptist knows what that's like. How often, instead of strengthening his faith, their words depress and dishearten. Now, John had expectations of Jesus' work that were not in harmony with the will of God. This set him up to be disappointed and to be hurt. That what he thought Jesus was going to do is what his hopes were set on. And when Jesus didn't do what he was hoping Jesus would do, he was disappointed. And we wrestle with that sometimes too, don't we? Our disappointment isn't because Jesus wasn't faithful. It was that we had expectations and Jesus didn't do them. And we ask him to do things for us that may not be in our best interest. And God in his love for you deprives you of that thing that you so desperately want because he knows there's something else that you really need. You ever been there? And then we get disappointed when it doesn't happen. Now, this also caused John to actually doubt the success of his own work because The very people that I trained and discipled, they're now doubting the identity of Jesus. Shouldn't there have been more results, right, than what I'm seeing right now? And were all of my sacrifices in vain? Because the whole thing's falling apart around him, it seems. You ever been there? You pour your life into some people, and then when things get difficult, they just give up on God entirely? And you think, whoa, 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 like, I thought things were working, and now I guess they aren't. 
And all this is going through John's mind as he's enduring the deafening silence of God. Again, he's hearing things about Jesus, but he's getting no visit from Jesus. It's very difficult for him. But his faith in Christ did not fail, and God eventually sent angels to his prison cell to remind him of the hand of God in his life at Christ's baptism and to remind him of the promises of God. So he begins to realize, I need to not harbor these thoughts much longer. And he didn't want to express his doubts to the disciples. And so he thinks, I have an idea. I'm going to send them to go see Jesus, and this is going to convince them that he's the guy. But he sends them with a request that is a little perturbing to Jesus. In Luke chapter 7, the disciples are basically told to go talk to Jesus, and they say, hey, so are, we're coming from John. He sent us, and he kind of wants to know, are, are you the guy, or should we be looking for somebody else? Well, wait a minute. What happened to behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? And look at what Jesus thinks, according to the desire of ages here. It was keenly bitter and disappointing to Christ's human nature. If John, the faithful forerunner, failed to discern Christ's mission, what could be expected from the self-seeking multitude? (laughs) These are the thoughts going through Jesus' mind. Very people he's come to save, like if, if this guy doesn't fully see what's going on, what are they going to see? So Jesus doesn't spend a whole lot of time brooding on this, and his response is, go back and tell John what you see. Well, what does he see? The blind receive their sight, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor had the gospel preached to them. And then he closes with this kind of veiled rebuke for John, where he says, blessed is he, whosoever shall find none occasion of stumbling in me or who will not stumble because of me. In short, John, you know better. You know better than this, John. And this is what she says based upon John's response to what he hears. The evidence of his divinity was seen in his adaptation to the needs of suffering humanity, and his glory was shown in his condescension to our low estate, that he was willing to set the captives free and be willing to associate with those people who are not to be associated with, right? being willing to set the captives free, to preach to the poor. And the disciples bore the message, and she says that it was enough. This was enough for John. That's good news for us. She uses that phrase a lot, actually, which is very helpful. From here, John came to understand the true nature of Jesus' work. He came to get it. But eventually what ends up happening is Herodias goes and dances a dance Uh, at a gathering where adult beverages are involved, and they seem to have missed the class on dress reform. Um, And she, at least, seemed to have missed the class on dress reform. And when you miss alcohol and scantily clothed people, things happen. And he isn't thinking clearly, and he says, he's trying to kind of sound impressive in front of his boys and says, I'm going to give you whatever you want up to half my kingdom. Not knowing what she's about to ask for not even considering it, because the guy actually feared John. So she doesn't make her own decision. She goes to mom and says, hey, what do you want me to ask for? And she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter, and I want it now. And she runs in, she tells Herod, and you you can just know that he had one of those gulp moments. Well, now what do I do? I just made, and so he's just hoping that somebody is going to stand up for John. And you know what happens? Nothing. No one stands up for John. So because of the people around him and because of what he said, he doesn't. John dies. 
And John never gets a visit from Jesus in this lonely prison cell. Never shows up. But here's why. Jesus did not interpose to deliver his servant. Look what she says next. Jesus knew that John would bear the test. That's the faith of Jesus and work. He knew things about John that John didn't know about John. Gladly would the Savior have come to John to brighten the dungeon gloom with his own presence, but he was not to place himself in the hands of enemies and imperil his own mission. Jesus is on a biblically ordained and prophetically proclaimed. That right. Mission. I didn't mean to say that. It just happened. And... This mission is of the utmost importance, and if Jesus does anything to imperil this mission, it's going to cause a lot of problems, right? Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, Daniel 9 mainly. Um, so gladly would he have delivered his faithful servant, but for the sake of thousands who in after years must pass from prison to death, John was to drink the cup of martyrdom. So this was not just for John, this was for people who would learn from the example of John, who go through similar experiences as John. And there's something we can learn from that. Sometimes we suffer because God knows that we will be champions through this by His strength. And that other people will go through this and will need our story to get them through. God gets glory out of stuff like this. He doesn't mess around. right? Nothing is wasted with the kingdom of heaven. As the followers of Jesus should languish in lonely cells or perish by the sword, the rack or the burning stake, apparently forsaken by God and man, what a stay to their hearts would be the thought that John the Baptist, to whose faithfulness Christ himself had borne witness, had passed through a similar experience. Just imagine how many people in the midst of the Dark Ages could look at the experience of John the Baptist and realize, by God's strength, my story can do the same. Many, for years afterwards, generations, millennia afterwards, benefited from John's story. Death itself only placed him forever beyond the power of temptation. In this warfare, Satan was revealing his own character before the witnessing universe he made manifest his enmity towards God and man. And she may say this in one of my later slides, but she literally says that he died a conqueror. And that people who die in Christ die as conquerors, never to have to be tempted ever again. And that's difficult for us because we view happiness as them being with us. We don't view happiness as them being with Jesus and having that be eternally sealed. And I don't mean going to heaven immediately after you die in that sense. Don't kick me out of here. I'm not done yet. Um, but this is what's going on here, right? Jesus knows that death literally seals these individuals that nothing can take them out of the hand of God. But we, we wrestle because we want them here. But if we step back and see God's perspective, it's helpful. It still hurts, and it should. Death was meant to be foreign. Adam and Eve wept more over the first leaf dying than we do for our closest relatives, we're told. Death is meant to be foreign. We're kind of jaded to it compared to them. It's okay to have those feelings of longing, but we need to take a step back to understand the full picture of reality to appreciate what's going on. Does that make sense? Though no miraculous deliverance was granted, John, he was not forsaken. Amen? He had always the companionship of heavenly angels who opened to him the prophecies concerning Christ and the precious promises of Scripture. God literally sent angels from heaven to visit this man. He didn't get Jesus, but he got angels from heaven reminding him of the promises of God. That's good news, y'all. Very good news. 
These were his stay as they were to be the stay of God's people through the coming ages. To John the Baptist, as to those who came after him, was given the assurance, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end. And God never leads his children otherwise, and they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purposes which they are fulfilling as co-workers with him. And I think we close with this. Not Enoch, who was translated to heaven, not Elijah, who ascended in a chariot of fire, was greater or more honored than John the Baptist, who perished alone in a dungeon. Unto you it is given in behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. And listen to this. And of all the gifts that heaven can bestow upon men, fellowship with Christ in his sufferings is the most weighty trust and the highest honor. Doesn't feel like it in the furnace, does it? But it's true. But look at what she says next. Here's the problem. The nation was looking for a Messiah who had not been promised. And one who would fulfill their desires based upon a misunderstanding of how the kingdom operates. They wanted someone to deliver them militarily and politically. They were looking for a Messiah that had not been promised. But here's where the airplane lands in your living room. Many of us are wrestling with the same thing. We are looking for a Messiah that hasn't been promised. Someone who will deliver me from every hardship, every difficulty, every loss, every grief. That's not the Messiah that was promised. But we were promised a Messiah who would set the captives free, who would heal the brokenhearted, and who would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Amen? Amen. We're not left alone to suffer. We've got help. That's, just, that's how, she, uh, how God dealt with John the Baptist in the midst of his silence of God. It was for the glory of God, and he died a conqueror. Amen? Amen? The next chapter is found in John chapter 11. I'm just kind of summarizing for time's sake. Um, and I'm sending my slides to one of the e-com here to make available to everyone. Last night, today, and tomorrow in audio and stuff too. So um, if you just want to sit back and enjoy the ride, fine. If you want to take notes or take pictures, it's your call. But I am giving the slides afterwards. Now... In John chapter 11, Jesus is approached. Let's go ahead and turn there. I'll kind of introduce this story from the text, and then I'll kind of summarize to the best of my ability to try to be a good steward of your time today. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Jesus stayed there a lot, by the way. And it was this Mary who anointed the Lord with the fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, does Jesus love Martha and Mary and her brother Lazarus? Does Jesus love Lazarus, first of all? But they're reminding Jesus that Jesus loves Lazarus. Why? Because Lazarus needs him. But then this is what they say. He whom you love is sick, and that's it. Not, and please come, and the address is, and you can put it in your iPhone here. They don't say any of this. They don't even ask Jesus to come. And you know why? Because they know he will. All we have to do is tell Jesus what's going on, and he'll come. We know. And so Jesus says, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Same phrase we heard with John the Baptist, isn't it? That the glory of God would be achieved through this suffering. So it says then in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
And so if you didn't know the narrative, what's Jesus going to do like right now as a result of that statement? Giddy up. He's coming, right? Jesus is leaving right now. He's taking the fastest means of transportation there. But then the text goes on to say, so that when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two more days where he was. Well, wait a minute. Jesus loved them. Jesus made them wait. Well, how does that work? Listen to what she says, though. He loved them no less because he tarried. You ever been in that situation? I know Jesus loves me, but I don't like that he's making me wait. Guess what? He loves you no less because he tarries. You can take that to the bank. Now, when he arrived, how long has Lazarus been dead? Four days. Well, here's why. The Jews hated Jesus so much, the religious leaders specifically, that they actually discredited Jesus' previous resurrections because they weren't really dead. I mean, they had this tradition that came from Greek foolishness that, you know, the soul stays in the body for three days and then it does its thing. And so they're literally questioning a resurrection from the dead. They hate this guy so much. Oh, I mean, come on. Like, she was only dead for like 24 hours. <laughs> what he said. He's laughing. And, he, you know, he raises the widow's son. He raises Jairus' daughter. And they think, no, that's not good enough. They're not really dead. Oh, so, so you could raise them then, right? Well, no, but, yeah. So they hate Jesus. That's why. So this is why this has to happen. Because of those previous resurrections to disprove that ridiculous myth. But this is another thing that has to happen. Even the closest people to Jesus are sure that Jesus failed them right now. And a lot of glory is about to come out of this, we hope. And this had to occur to show the power of God that is not limited by any circumstance or situation. The power of God is not limited by your circumstances. It's not. It doesn't matter what it looks like. If Jesus is wanting to do something, it gets done. Four days, no problem. 30 days, no problem, right? Jesus can handle that. So when Jesus shows up, and Martha finally hears about it, the first thing that comes out of her mouth is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If Jesus had been around, I wouldn't be hurting right now. I wouldn't be suffering. So Jesus responds and says, hey, your brother's going to rise again. And she says, yeah, I know. Later. Those, and he talks about the resurrection. And this is something that we wrestle with because hearing about the promise of the resurrection in the midst of grief is somewhat comforting, but not comforting enough when we're hurting, right? When our emotions are just stretched on end. And so, yeah, that doesn't help me right now. Can't hear the, can't hear the beautiful sound of my brother's voice. I can't feel the warmth of his embrace. There's nothing for me right now. If you would have been here, I wouldn't be going through what I'm going through. You ever said that? Thankfully, it's not the first time he's heard it. So she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But the process continues because once Mary gets wind that Jesus is there, she rolls up. You know what she has to say? The exact same thing. Word for word. They've been using this line day after day. I mean, every day that Lazarus gets worse, they're looking at the door. They're looking for that familiar silhouette. And Jesus never shows up. 
and Lazarus dies and Jesus doesn't show up, and four more days go by. And all that keeps running through their minds is if Jesus had been here, my brother would not have died. And again, they're kind of looking for a Messiah that hadn't been promised. Look, we got, this guy can feed people. He can heal people's wounds and raise the dead. No one around Jesus is going to suffer. But it's not the Messiah that was promised. Because Jesus has something bigger in view. All they can think about in their suffering is that if Jesus had been here, they would not be going through hardship right now. When Jesus is nearby, he's like the good luck charm and suffering doesn't happen. But that was based upon a misunderstanding of how the kingdom operates. And so when Jesus goes to the tomb, as he's going there, the people kind of start to murmur a little bit, you know, couldn't he have done something and changed this? And literally in John chapter 11, the shortest verse in the Bible, it says that Jesus wept. God cried. And you know why? Because of the unbelief of his people. Did you know that God cries at our unbelief? The two instances that we see Jesus cry in the New Testament are both because of the unbelief of the people and because of people not being able to live up to their full potential because of their unbelief. It makes God cry. And so when Jesus gets to the tomb, he says, take away the stone. And you would think that Mary and Martha are going to say, amen, Jesus, take away that stone. That's not what they say. You know what they say? He stinks, Jesus. And there's nothing you can do about it. He stinks, just like this whole situation, it stinks. And Jesus' response is, the glory of God lies in this stinky tomb. The glory of God is in the midst of this stinky situation. Whatever you're contending with, with hardship and difficulty, yeah, it stinks. But that's where the glory of God is found. Something good can come from this, he says. And God did get glory out of this. The text later says that many of the Jews were leaving the priest and believed in Jesus. So the priest had a great idea. Let's kill Lazarus too. Let's kill Jesus and now we got to kill Lazarus because he rose this guy from the dead after four days and his people didn't believe that he would do it and then he did it. we we got to get rid of him. Got to get rid of the evidence. But here's the point. The people are wrestling. Martha and Mary are wrestling and they wanted comfort. Let me phrase it this way. Jesus had comfort for them. But they wanted their brother more than the comfort that Jesus had to offer them. And this is what makes him cry. Because we're telling Jesus he's not enough for us. Remember, those people in Jesus die conquerors. But in this situation, they wanted their brother more than they wanted the comfort that Jesus longed to give them. And this is what broke his heart. And some of us have been there, haven't we? Jesus has an abundance of comfort for us in our times of loss and separation. I promise you. He literally calls the Holy Spirit the comforter to do for you what you can't do for yourself in those moments. And yet in our grieving, we have the audacity to tell Jesus he's not enough. And this is what brings him to tears. Remember that John only lost his earthly life, but the life that was hid in Christ, he could not touch. The enemy could not touch. And he died a conqueror. But this is what Ellen White says about this. And this is some of the most beautiful language ever penned by a mortal in the midst of heartbreak and difficulty. 
To all who are reaching out to feel the guiding hand of God, the moment of greatest discouragement is the time when divine help is nearest. When you feel that the wheels have come off of this thing and it's all a mess, that's actually when God is the closest. It's good news. And she says they'll look back with thankfulness upon the darkest hour of their lives. With gratitude. A good friend of mine, Sean Briggs, the pastor in Maine, wrote an article on this. And this is what he says. It's lame resolution, so I'll just read it. It says, we cannot know, of course, in any particular moment, if Jesus wants something quote-unquote bad to happen or just simply allows it to happen. But we do know that he loves us. And that sometimes, in ways that don't make sense to us at all in our nearsightedness, he always has a much longer view in mind. Sometimes we are content with far too little. We want to experience healing. God wants to give us resurrection. We want to be spared of temptation. God wants us to experience victory through temptation. Even Jesus, perfect as he was, learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Hebrews 5 and verse 8. Further, God wants to give us much greater evidence of His love and a far greater belief in His power. But in our impatience and haste, we, like Martha, are tempted to say, Lord, if only you had acted sooner then, fill in the blank. To us, as to Martha, He says, I love you. And because I do, I want you to be witness to far greater evidences of my love and power. But the hardest story to tell is the story of Jesus himself found in Matthew 26 through 27. When Jesus gets into the Garden of Gethsemane, as soon as he crosses the threshold of this gate, he collapses to the ground because the entire weight of the sin of the world has now been heaped upon his shoulders. And I mean every individual sin and the punishment it deserves from the first fall of Adam and Eve until the second coming of Jesus Christ. All of them get heaped on the shoulders of one man at one point in time, and Jesus collapses to the ground, and the disciples have to help him up. Then he falls to the ground again, and the disciples have to help him up. And they're seeing a Jesus that they've never seen before. He's visibly shaken and distraught, and he's a mess right now comparatively. And they don't know what to do with this, because Jesus is always calm, cool, and collected all the time. Two naked demoniacs running at him at the Gadarenes rebukes the demons. The text says later that they were clothed and seated in the right minds. A demoniac jumps up in the middle of church and says, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of the most high God? And he rebukes the demon and the man sits down. On the boat, whenever the waves are crashing over the seas, Jesus is asleep. Then the disciples, literally the first words out of the twelve disciples' mouth in the Gospel of Matthew are, Lord, save us, we are perishing. Matthew 8. How's that for an introduction? And then Jesus rebukes the disciples before he rebukes the wind and the waves because of their unbelief. If you're going to wake me up, at least wake me up for something else, right? So this is a visibly distraught Jesus that they don't know what to do with this because all of their confidence is being around this guy who's always confident, who's this wide, who's this tall, and who can handle anything, but then Jesus is just seemingly collapsing under this load, and they don't know what to do. And he tells them, my soul's exceedingly sorrowful even to death. I'm going down, fellas. But Jesus is not only dealing with the silence of God in this moment. 
He's also dealing with the silence of the closest friends that he has on earth. Certainly, if there's anybody who's going to be there for Jesus, it's going to be James, John, and Peter. And where are they? Sleeping. And Jesus is left to suffer alone, begging God the Father to change his mind. Because his flesh is shrinking back from this responsibility. He knows a thing or two about the silence of God. And the silence of the closest people to you on earth. So he's enduring the most deafening silence imaginable. He's been in a fellowship with God from eternity past. And in this moment, it literally is if God the Father does not exist. He's nowhere to be found in the experiential mind of Jesus. In the thoughts that are running through his mind, God is nowhere to be found. And then God does for Jesus what he did for John the Baptist, but with even more endearing language that is heartbreaking to me. He sends an angel from heaven. The angel that's at the right hand of the Father is dispatched to go and minister to Jesus as he's being tempted to walk from his mission, as he's suffering tenaciously. And the picture given in Desire of Ages is literally heartbreaking. She says that this angel at the right hand of the Father comes to Jesus and cradles the head of Jesus in his bosom and speaks tender words of encouragement to Jesus reminding him of the promises of God, Jesus. And to do for Jesus what we did not do for Jesus. Do you remember the baptism? How he said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. It's still true. Do you remember the Mount of Transfiguration when he said that this is my son? Listen to him. It's still true. He's here, Jesus. And he cares. Jesus was longing for human affection and sympathy, Desire of Ages tells us in this moment. And he gets nothing from people. So God dispatches the angel at the right hand of the Father to give it to him. Everything he needs. And she says that his decision is firm. He will save man at any cost to himself. That did it. And then comes the crucifixion, and we hear words coming out of the mouth of Jesus that you never expect to hear from God himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know who's saying that? God. Jesus is so overwhelmed by the deafening silence of God that he's proclaiming out loud and verbally, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is enduring the silence of God. You have this in common with him. You have a Savior who's acquainted with your grief, who's been tempted in all points as you are and yet without sin. Why? So that you could therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because you know he's safe you know he understands. You know he doesn't think that you're weak. You can come boldly to Jesus when you're wrestling with the silence of God. Why? Because he understands. He's been there. You think he doesn't want to help you? Now, what he has to offer you may not be what you're asking for, but I assure you it's what you need. And it will lead to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. You also have this in common with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And you have this in common with John the Baptist. The common thread through all of them, God never left them. 
and he never forsook them. And in the time of their greatest need, he was closer to them than he had ever been. And there's actually a quote on this. At this point in time, when Jesus is on the cross, it looks like midnight, but it's actually noon. And there's a reason for this. And I hope you're going to buckle your seatbelts, because this is not an easy thing to cover. But there's clouds surrounding the cross. You know why? Well, according to Desire of Ages 753, in that thick darkness, God's presence was hidden. He makes darkness his pavilion and conceals his glory from human eyes. God and his holy angels were beside the cross. Are you with me? At the time when Jesus feels that the Father's the farthest from him that he's been in 33 and a half years, he's literally the closest to him he's been in 33 and a half years. He's there physically. God has condescended to come to earth to be next to his son. He never left him. God never left him, and he never left you. Even in those moments when you felt that he did, he didn't. The story's the same in all three of these stories. Satan cast an impenetrable cloud of darkness between them to make him feel that he was forsaken. But he was not. I repeat, he was not. And neither are you. If you feel that you're in the same darkness, we now see that he hasn't forsaken you. The whole point, actually, for the clouds is because Jesus, or God the Father, actually wanted to spare the sinners in the presence of the cross so that even they could be saved. In the same way in which the priest had to waft the incense behind the curtain to save his life, God did this so that even these souls could be saved. These people deserve to die, many of them, we would think. And yet God's love for them is so strong that he shrouds himself while he's there next to his son. She says, the father was with his son, yet his presence was not revealed. Had his glory flashed forth from the cloud, every human beholder would have been destroyed. And in that dreadful hour, Christ was not to be comforted with the father's presence. He trod the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with him. You know why? Because there's times when we tread the winepress alone. And there's no one with us. He did this for you. Jesus was willing to do this for you. You know why? Because he thinks you're worth it. Regardless of how you feel. Regardless of what lies you're being told in your head from the accused of the brethren, it doesn't matter. The actions of Jesus speak louder than the lies of the devil. Amen. He had to be tempted in all points as we are. We covered this earlier from Hebrews 4. To provide healing and strength that only he could give in that time of need for us. Jesus had to suffer like us to be able to heal and comfort us, according to Hebrews 2. So that when you feel that God is nowhere to be found and that he doesn't care about you, he knows what that's like. He's been there. He trod that wine press thinking of you. And I want to close with this thought before we move into the last section here. Silence and rejection are not the same thing. And I'm speaking to genuine Christians, obviously. But there are times when we're wrestling with the silence of God, we think that we've been rejected by God. But that was not the case for John the Baptist. That was not the case for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And you better believe that wasn't the case for Jesus. 
There are proven case studies that silence does not equal rejection. You need to know that today. Just because you dealt with the silence of God does not necessarily mean that you were rejected by God. It could mean that Jesus knew more about you than you did. And he knew that you would be a conqueror and would be glory, bring glory to the kingdom of heaven for his sake. He chose you to be the diplomat, for you to have the story for the benefit of the people around you and maybe in generations afterward. Jesus sees things in you that you don't see in you. And that's good news. That's the faith of Jesus. So there's a singer-songwriter, his name is Andrew Peterson, who's a very, very gifted musician. I prefer his acoustic stuff, but that doesn't really matter. Anyway, um, so Andrew has this experience where, kind of a funny, not funny story. So someone was invited to sing at a monastery. They couldn't make it, and they said, look, you go for me and just tell them that you're me. And they're not going to know any better. Monks don't have Facebook. Like, just, just go and tell them that you're me. And he does. Uh, he wanted time to get away. He was really wrestling because he was wrestling with Jesus because there were things that he was wanting from God. And he chose to take his time there to fast and pray for three days to show God that he deserved the answer that he was looking for. You ever been there? Double tithe, outreach, fasting? Fine, I'll call grandma, right? Whatever the situation may be, that you're just wanting to show Jesus that you're worthy of receiving the answer that you're desiring in your desperation. So he goes. And as Andrew is going, um, he goes on a walk. I mean, they got these pathways. It's in the mountains of Kentucky. And hills, if you're going to be Californians, mountain-ish, depending on what they are. And so he's walking, and there's this sign that says, To the statues, T-O the statues. Okay. He walks along this path, and he's just wrestling with God. Uh, because he's not getting the answers that he wants. And he gets to the statue, and it's Peter, James, and John asleep. And he says, oh, I get it. This is Gethsemane. Um, Jesus is probably up the bend somewhere. So he follows the path up a little bit more, and he sees it. There's a statue of Jesus, but he said, the picture that I saw there in that moment was not the picture I expected to see. What he expected to see was a picture of Jesus standing and praying in piety, maybe open hands, but the picture he sees is this. Jesus on his knees with his hands on his forehead and his elbows out like he's got wings. And this is the thought that goes through Andrew's mind as he sees him. He says, he was in agony. This guy is in agony. And in a moment it dawned on me that he looked the way that my heart felt. My God, my God, why have you left me alone? Why won't you give me the answer that I want? And he said, on the way back, I realized that I had been comforted. My pain had not been taken away, but I was comforted in the fact that the God I love and worship is familiar with my sorrow. Some of us, I'd like to close with an appeal. Some of us, because of the silence of God in our experience, it has leveled us. We've not been the same person since. We lost someone, we lost health and mobility, we lost jobs, we lost families, maybe we lost marriages. And we've gone through these difficult, painful situations wondering, where was God when I needed Him most? I hope we've seen today that He was in the same place He was with John the Baptist, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and with Jesus, right beside you. And 
Some of us have left. We're here in body, but we've left in mind and in spirit. We've continued with some of the Christian disciplines to keep peace in the home, but we've left because it was too hard. Others of us are trying to hang on, but we never really got our footing back. We feel like we've been swimming against the tide the whole time. And some of us, by the grace of God, have found deep healing and strength that will last through the ages. And praise God for that. But I want to invite all of you this morning to take hold of a hand that will never fail you. And to know that you can cling to the silence of God in the life of Jesus, John the Baptist, and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, if you're wrestling with it right now. And you can know that He was faithful, that He was faithful to them, He will be faithful to me. And you can take that to the bank, amen? Amen. And so if people in this room have wrestled with this and they want to come back, they want to be made well, they want to thrive in their Christian experience, and they want God to get glory out of this situation. If that's you, I want to invite you to stand today. And I want to invite the rest of you to join them in solidarity as we close in prayer. Sweet Jesus, I thank you that you are indeed a faithful God who's acquainted with grief, who's acquainted with pain and sorrow, and a man who's acquainted with the deafening silence of God. And I just pray for those who have really wrestled and struggled because of their experience, that you would set them free. Lord, that you would show them that you're everything that they've been looking for and more, and that no more grief would be brought to your heart because they don't believe that you're enough. Show us today, minister to us today, and show us that you are indeed enough, all that we need and everything we ever would have wanted. Lord, I pray that you would bring comfort and peace to these dear souls in ways that nothing ever could, that no human touch could, no word of comfort, Lord, that not even having these people back could afford, that you would be everything for them. God, I pray that you would cover our sins with the blood of Jesus, that you would forgive us for wrestling, for grappling with our faith when we've been leveled by the silence of God. And Lord, we pray that you would get glory out of this today and the next day, and for eternity. This is our plea, and we ask this, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.